A surgeon came up to me and said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about this case. He's on the ketogenic diet and he lost 100 pounds. And I said, okay, you know, sure happy to talk about ketogenic diet. And he said, what do you think of that diet? And I said, well, let me ask you, what's the etiology for the console? And I said, oh, that person needs four vessel bypass. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Let's see, we did Fruit Towns last time, so why not go the veggie route today? Spuds, Florida, Burnt Corn, Alabama, Cucumber, West Virginia. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 28 of season 5, number 327 overall. One out of every four people will die from heart disease in the United States. That is a grim statistic, one out of four. Yet, fewer than one out of ten patients will be referred to a dietitian by their cardiologist. Now, how do we know that? Because the cardiologists themselves have said so. And with heart disease being one of the most preventable chronic diseases, those numbers just don't seem to add up. Now, a doctor who participated in this survey of cardiologists is here with us today, Dr. Monica Agarwal. She's an adjunct clinical associate professor of medicine in the University of Florida Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, and she also happens to be the author of Your Body on Fire, but perhaps most important to today's conversation, she's a nutrition advocate from both the patient and doctor perspective. Now, you just heard her talk at the beginning of the show about a patient who had lost a bunch of weight, which is fantastic. The problem is that patient needs quadruple bypass surgery, which is not so great. And the biggest problem still is that the patient is eating a keto diet, which means likely lots of meats that are loaded with fat and cholesterol. And that is probably contributing to the blockages. And that is the disconnect with a lot of doctors because they're not taught about nutrition. Now, of course, there are far more reasons why cardiologists aren't referring patients for nutritional counseling, and we'll be getting into those reasons on the show today as well, talking about biases and what types exist, biases that extend beyond race and beyond gender. Maybe it has to do with the way that the patient looks and the incorrect assumption that because a patient might be overweight, they don't want to go see a nutritionist. So why bother? Well, today, we're going to be talking about exactly why you should. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great. It's always fun to be here with you, Chuck. The pleasure is all mine. And when this study crossed my desk, Dr. Agarwal, I about lost it. I said to myself, well, look, you've got so many people in this country, hundreds of thousands who die every single year of heart disease. And yet we know that it's one of the most preventable chronic diseases out there. And one of the best ways to prevent it is through proper nutrition. Yet we're seeing so few patients getting referred by their cardiologist for nutritional intervention. The numbers just don't seem to add up for me. So when you put this survey out there to the cardiologist, I think you asked something like 120 some odd cardiologists. Were you surprised at the responses that you received? 
you know, sadly, no, um, it wasn't much of a surprise because this is an area we've been studying for some time is the lack of education. I mean, the problem is multifold, you know, um, you know, heart disease is everybody knows in concept that eating better and exercise is good for the heart. Um, but as physicians, we don't aren't necessarily taught to tell people that or we tell them we'll eat better and exercise, but we don't really tell them how to do it because we ourselves haven't been trained how to do that. So you'll get a wide breadth of education from a physician. I've heard my colleagues tell their patients diet doesn't matter. I've heard physicians say, um, well, it just doesn't matter what you do, but uh, I would do ketogenic. Um, I've had surgeons come up to me, actually, uh, I had a great story, random story, but of a surgeon who came up to me at University of Florida who said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about this case um, that I'm seeing. Uh, he's on the ketogenic diet and he lost 100 pounds. And I said, okay, you know, sure, happy to talk to you about ketogenic um, diet. Uh, and, he's, and he said, what do you think of that diet? And I said, well, let me ask you, what's the etiology for the console? And I said, oh, he, that person needs four vessel bypass, right? And so there's this disconnect where people don't see that the impact of the food does impact how you, how you heal and how your body is. And so that's one of the biggest problems is that doctors don't understand nutrition. And so they give whatever has worked for them or what they've heard about sort of cursorily. And that's the education that they provide their patients. So we hear doctors say, does that diet doesn't matter. Go ketogenic makes you lose weight. Um, and, uh, go eat plants. Uh, we've here a mix of this Mediterranean is the option. Uh, paleo is the option. Like you hear so many things. And so it's so confusing for patients because they're hearing all this news from outside, uh, all over the social media and the television and advertising. And then they're hearing from their doctors also like a whole other set of things. And so patients really struggle. It's, it's a real significant problem, but it comes back to the fact that physicians aren't taught about nutrition. And we, we as physicians are not given any formal, most universities won't give any formal education to their, um, um, to their students, unfortunately. And that's changing slowly and slowly. But as somebody who teaches some of the curriculum at University of Florida, that's another big problem is that I will, if I give the EKG conference, uh, there are 200 people in the room asking questions, so interactive. They want to know everything I want to, that I can teach them. If I give a nutrition lecture, lecture, there's 60 people in the room. Mm. So I'll ask and I'll say, I've asked the students because I know them pretty well. I said, look, you know, what is it? Is it me? Like, do I just do a worse talk when I give nutrition talk than I do when I do EKGs? And I said, it's nothing to do with that. They said, nutrition's not on the test and nutrition isn't on the test. It's not on the board exams. It's not on the standardized testing. And so, you know, some multiple levels. So the students should pick and choose what lectures they'll go to. And if there's nothing that's going to get them into the next phase of being a doctor, then they skip it. All right. Well, let me ask you kind of an interesting question here. This just kind of popped into my my brain the way you were just explaining the attendance for the various topics of lectures. Do you think part of the problem here could be the fact that at least on TV and in movies, we see this dramatization where cardiologists or surgeons in general are ultra competitive for you know, the number of patients that they work on or the patients that they work on. Like they, I want this surgery. You know what I mean? Do you think that there's a reluctance to refer a patient to another practitioner because they want to hold on to that control? They want to be in charge of this patient's outcome? 
I don't think it's as black and white as that, that they don't want to refer to people because they want to keep them for themselves as much as they just don't think that anyone else can do it better necessarily. And so it's often an ego thing. I know what I'm talking about. Um, so I will, I mean, doctors are happy to refer when they don't understand something, but they have to then understand that they don't understand something, which is a bigger problem. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference in referral rates between the cardiologists who themselves have studied up on nutrition versus those who have not. That was a big part of this study here too. But I want to talk about some of the other reasons why cardiologists gave, uh, why they were reluctant to refer patients. 63% uh, attributed uh, their primary challenge to achieving dietary goals to, uh, they said it was the patient's lack of interest and motivation in making dietary changes. So I'm wondering, and I have been uh, the, the patient, believe you me, I mean, when you get up to 420 pounds, you're seeing a cardiologist. Um, what, I, I mean, how does a doctor make that determination without even asking the patient, like, is this something that you would be interested in? Yeah. You know, you know, so much of this is years of, um, so many things, you know, years of practice, a little bit of bitterness, um, uh, you get jaded, I think, over time that you think people aren't interested. Some people actually say that they're not interested. Um, and so these impact, um, you know, over time, people build up this, oh, they're not interested. Well, there's no point in me doing this because they just want a medicine. Um, you know, I think that there's such a disconnect between what it is to be a doctor and what it is to be a patient. And somebody who's traversed both sides, I'll give you another example, is when I used to when I give out a statin 10 years ago, I would have given out a statin and I would have said to somebody, well, you know, the likelihood that you'll have a reaction to this medication is one in a thousand. Um, and, you know, oh, that's not much. You'll be fine. You'll be, you know, and I would be a little bit, uh, maybe a little patronizing and say, you know, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, whereas now that I've been a patient, I would say that when you, I understand it now, like if you are told that there's a one in a thousand chance that you could be sick, you, you think, oh God, well, maybe I'll be that one in a thousand. And I've definitely had many a days where I'd go to bed after taking a medication and worried that I wouldn't wake up in the morning or that I'd be in fulminant liver failure um, when I woke up, you know? And so um, there is just this significant disconnect where physicians, um, they, you know, they just don't understand what it's like to be a patient. And so they think that patients aren't interested and don't have motivation to change. But so much of the time is they just don't have, we don't have the tools, like we're not providing people with tools. And, you know, it's hard to be a patient, right? I mean, there's a lot of hopelessness, a lot of uh, sadness. Um, and doctors often don't, um, they don't key into that, or they don't try to understand that. And they don't try to support patients when they need that support. To be fair, what you said early in your response there was that a lot of the patients, uh, the perception is that they just want a pill to make the problem go away. And that is 100% true. And I don't know what the percentage is of patients who would rather just pop a pill to make the problem go away versus those who really want to address the root cause of the issue, right? Clearly, it takes more work to go to a dietitian and work on improving your diet and your lifestyle than it does to take a pill every morning. But I think, though, it, it also to be fair, you have to judge each patient as an individual and give each patient that option. And I think that 
you would be surprised that more than one out of 10 would opt to at least attempt to address the diet and lifestyle um, in addition to at least initially taking the medication. Hopefully they can get to a point where they no longer need it. But I do believe that the, the number of patients who would want to address the root cause of an issue would be greater than that 10%, uh, less than that even, who are being referred for dietary interventions. And I think, I think, I mean, I think that you, you make a good point, right? I mean, that everybody, um, look, who doesn't want a magic pill? Um, who doesn't want a magic pill and say, oh, if I take this, I'm going to lose 100 pounds, or I'm going to take this and my heart disease is going to go away. Voila. I mean, if I had that, I would take it too. Um, but it's never as simple as that. And that's what I think we don't teach people is that a pill doesn't necessarily take care of, it may solve one part of a problem, but won't always necessarily, doesn't always fix the whole problem. And when you take a pill, you often have side effects and there's interactions. And so often people think that you take this pill and you're voila, you're better, but that's not, unfortunately, that's not as cut and dry either. So I think part of the time when people lack motivation to change or keep looking for that magic pill is they don't fully understand what pills, what the, what they lose when they take pills or what they gain when they change their lifestyle. What we're talking about here a little bit in terms of of perception of the patient, I think, you know, bias is a term that's been used a lot uh, recently. And I think that, you know, we're not necessarily talking about racial bias here, but I think that um, there is a little bit of natural bias that might enter into play here when a cardiologist walks into a room and they see somebody who is really struggling with their weight. I can only imagine what the doctors thought when they would come in and they would see me sitting on their table at 420 pounds, seeing me sitting there again, because I was chronically ill. I was forever in the doctor's office and had shown no inclination to make changes. It took years, years and years and years, Dr. Agarwal, for me to want to, to change and really like stand up and, and, and take control of things. And I can see though, to be fair, again, why that could be wearing for a lot of practicing physicians. You know, you, you see that time and time and time and time again, and you're like, why even bother? You know, so how, you know, from your perspective as a doctor, like how could you work uh, to prevent that kind of bias from entering into the equation and, and just kind of drowning out everybody else's uh, previous stories and judging the individual as just that, an individual. It doesn't matter what Tom, Dick, and Harry did before Susie was in the office. Just focus on Susie. Yeah, such a such an interesting but complicated question because everything is so imperfect. I mean, doctors right now are totally burnt out um, and they are overdone. Um, they're overused um, and they're beaten down. And so their focus uh, in clinical medicine is on acuity-based care and not value-based care. So if they schedule five procedures or um, then they're more likely, they make more money than if, they, and they don't mean they, the hospital makes more money um, than the, than if they do an hour long nutrition consultation. So there's, there's so many issues there, right? And so patient doctors are, are in, not that they're encouraged to create or have acuity, but um, we that's how the hospital works, right? The hospital system works and how payers work, sadly, it's all acuity-based care. And that's a fundamental flaw in, this, in the medical system. 
So it just, it, it's, it's, this creates this sort of speed-based approach. Uh, you're just kind of running from room to room um, because we're sort of supposed to see a patient every 15 minutes. And, you know, who can see, I can't see one patient in 15 minutes. And so you're just, I just can't do it. And so you're running from patient to patient and you're always tired and you're always like, oh, getting here and think about it. You have to write a note. So, you know, a lot, often the poor doctor is, and I have to say, you know, I have to stand up for the doctor too, because, you know, we're, we're often the brunt of like, God, you know, why aren't doctors doing a better job? Doctors are trying to do a good job, but they are strapped because they're seeing a patient every 15 minutes. And imagine actually expecting to get in the room, talk to the patient, have a meaningful conversation about nutrition and lifestyle, talk to them about motivating them about hope and, and feeling like they want to change. And they have to write the note and move to the next room within that 15 minutes. And so like, that's the, that's the culture that's been created and that any extra time that is spent, we're looked on poorly. If we don't see, and there are, there are administrators, hospital administrators that come to us and say, you didn't see enough patients today. So because we've chosen to spend a little longer with our patients, because we want to give them that impact, we are penalized. We are told that we shouldn't we can't do that. Like you have to squeeze in all those patients, but all, oh, definitely give good, valuable care in that 15 minutes. Right. And so it's such a complicated problem. And so then doctors really want to do a good job. I think all of us inherently want to do a good job, couple that with a lack of education and nutrition, and then being feeling beaten down. It's really hard to sort of have that motivation to talk to people and sort of motivate them. I think the thing that is different for me is that because I, um, I really do feel that my biggest impact and goal in life is to motivate and impact change. And so I, I know that everybody has it in them to make change. And it doesn't mean that it has to happen immediately, but sometimes it's a slow changes over time. And I know that. And I, and because I've been a patient myself, I feel everyone's pain and how sad they are and their, their sadness. I've, I've felt it myself. And so I think that that's what I'm able to sort of take into each visit. Um, And so I'm able to then um, I'm able to maybe be more successful. I mean, I don't think I'm so smart um, or or I just think that I offer people a way and I give them tools and I give them hope that they can change. And so but I've also changed my practice too. and those of you who know my details know I do practice in a standard cardiology practice. But I also have changed my practice too, where I offer our 60 to 70 minute appointments so I can um, via telemedicine so I can give people that extra time um, in, in a system that doesn't doesn't support and nurture or uh, embrace that. Is insurance still able to cover those longer appointments? Yeah. So good question. So, and we should talk a lot about dietary referrals and why those don't happen. There's so many areas there that we should also talk about. Um, And um, so no, um, you can, yes and no is what I would say is you can do a time-based approach in terms of billing um, for patients, but the amount of of reimbursement for an hour long visit in a standard cardiology practice is not the same, not nearly the same as seeing four high acuity patients in that same amount of time. Mm. 
Yeah, or that's like going to shop at Costco, right? You, you buy in bulk, you you wind up paying a little bit less, but you know somehow somebody's somebody's losing a little bit of money there. Um, but what you're describing though, those like 15 minute increments for patients, right? Life is not lived. Well, it may be lived in 15 minute increments, but there have been an infinite number of them between visits. So you know, for the patient, between the last time they were there in the office to see you, and a lot can happen in there. So to squeeze all of that, condense it down, and to just that short period of time, I think is it's really ridiculous. I don't know who initially came up with that 15 minute uh, window, but um, I, I wish that there was more wiggle room. And you were certainly not the first physician to come on this show and, and complain about it. You know, matter of fact, I've, I've had some who come on here and say, well, look, you know, like this is why I'm giving serious uh, serious thought to leaving traditional practice and opening up kind of my own concierge medicine, um, where it's more subscription based. And, you know, I can spend as much time as I need to with the patient to really drill down and make them feel comfortable and, and hash out a, a better battle plan for improving their health. Um, because they, they see the fundamental flaws, just as you were laying out there too. It's like, there's only so freaking much you can do with that short window of time. So that's, that's another problem. That's a side diatribe. I want to get back to this study though. Um, 59% of the cardiologists who were surveyed endorsed the belief that dietary interventions could improve the outcomes to an equal or greater degree than medicine alone. So uh, what, uh, what are the difference in outcomes between cardiology patients who are and are not referred for dietary intervention? So, um, what is the difference, uh, in the patient? So the patient outcome, I don't know if we know, um, we don't have statistics to show that if you look at those people who were referred versus those two people who weren't referred and what were the, how they did. Um, but we do know that people who all of our guidelines tell us and engage, tell us to engage in nutrition and lifestyle. In fact, um, the number one, you know, like a, we call it a class one indication, um, is to advocate for a primarily plant forward diet in, in our, in our patients. Um, but we, and we know that people that doctors or cardiologists that have had education in nutrition, they're more likely to refer, right? They're like 80% more likely to refer to a dietitian or to somebody for dietetics um, than people who aren't. There's another problem though. The other big problem is that um, reimbursement for dietary nutrition and nutrition education is very, very poor. And so because of that, you, um, you end up paying out of pocket um, for nutrition care. Now, I believe that that's worthwhile. That's probably the best amount of money that I will ever spend if I can learn how to eat better. But a lot of people, that's sort of, that's another kind of hurdle for people to kind of overcome is they have to kind of realize that they have to pay for better care. And we have uh, in our insurance system, we feel like we pay so much for insurance, which I get it. I pay so much for insurance. We feel like all of these services should be covered. But um, the reality is because of the way insurance is and because the number of people that are in the system now, um, it's not covered. And so, for instance, to give you an example, Medicare will not reimburse for a dietitian or dietitian referral unless you have diabetes or if you have kidney disease. 
So now that's crazy, right? So think about all the people who have heart disease, um, they won't cover it. Now, pri some private payers will cover more complex things like high lipids or obesity, but Medicare won't pay for most of that. So that's think about all the baby boomers that are over 65 years old, a huge breadth of people that we cannot, that, that you could refer to patient, you could refer, but their insurance won't cover it. So they have to pay out of pocket. So, you know, just so many issues there. The issues are doctors don't refer, you know, cardiologists don't refer that doctors don't think that they their patients want to be referred or they don't have interest in um, or motivation. Then they then they don't refer. Um, then they don't refer. And then when they do refer, they have all these hindrances because only some things are covered by insurance. How important then is it, given the the barriers, the challenges you're describing, how important is it then that the patient advocate for themselves? I know I can speak from experience. Like I have gone into uh, doctor's visits in my past, all fired up. I'm going to tell the doctor this, I'm going to tell the doctor that, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to move forward. But then we just blow right through the visit and it's the same as it ever was. And, and I didn't share or push for what I thought that I needed. How important is it? that the patient actually say, Hey, this is something I want to explore. Give me that referral. Yeah. So I think that's the key is that you have to advocate for yourself. And I think that patients need to walk in saying, I would like to be referred to a dietitian, or I'd like to learn more about nutrition. Um, and please work with me in this area. And then, so that requires a lot too, because that takes the motivation from the patient to want to do those changes, which sometimes is hard. Um, and then to like go in and verbalize that and sort of know what resources are out there, which is another issue is like sort of not understanding what resources are available. Uh, and then the doctor has to, you know, be willing to make that referral, which as you've pointed out earlier, is that cardiologists don't refer um, unless they've themselves have had nutrition education. But I think the key is for patients is that they need to go seek out their own nutrition and lifestyle education. I really do, because um, the changes that I made in order to heal my body through my nutrition and lifestyle were game changers for me. And so and they are for so many people. And so if you want a life that is, you know, medication free or pain free or free of illness or to suppress or combat or manage those illnesses, there are opportunities out there. And you just have to find the people that can be in your corner and will help you through the process. Uh, I wish it could only be through the doctor, uh, but because of the things we've outlined here, you have to advocate for yourself. So finding you know, going into the doctor's office and saying, I want to work with somebody about this. How can you help me? Also finding resources online um, that of people who can help you, um, classes and courses to ad ad advocate nutrition and lifestyle. Because there's no question that there's data that if you change your nutrition and if you change your lifestyle, you will get better. Uh, there's no question. So, um, and when you change your nutrition and lifestyle, you change all the parts, right? So like, a, I always tell people a medication is like, you know, it handles one pathway um, to healing. But imagine that if you use nutrition and lifestyle, you can actually change multiple pathways um, to healing, which is a game changer. 
kind of a housekeeping question as we wrap things up here. Were you able to drill down and kind of ex extrapolate from the data that you got um, as far as the age of the cardiologist, how many years they've been practicing, um, whether or not they were more or less likely to make that referral to a dietitian? My, my hypothesis anyway, Dr. Agarwal, would be that the younger doctors would be more likely to do it, perhaps because they're more progressive and maybe even a little bit more in touch with the idea of lifestyle medicine. Yeah, so um, we don't, we didn't get, we didn't write down, we didn't get the years as much as the years in practice, um, or the years in practice in terms of how many, so people um, like 43% or something like that of patient, of cardiologists were in practice for more than 20 years. So that certainly is a role, whereas people are only 28% in the, in that were in practice for 10 years or less. So I do agree that younger doctors um, were, are probably more likely, um, are more likely to refer, but I don't remember that we looked at that. I'm just remembering looking at the article right now, if we specifically looked at that question, um, by, by number of years in practice, and that's a good question, but we could certainly look at that. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd just be curious. I, I flipped through the study. I, I did not uh, necessarily remember seeing that. So I was hoping maybe you had the answer um, off the top of your head. And and the last question uh, about the study here is, uh, you know, just kind of, again, hypothesizing. We're talking about cardiology here today, but do you expect that the same types of um, statistics would be pulled if we were polling uh, physicians practicing in other areas of medicine? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this is a, this is not a cardiology specific thing. Sadly, it is quite universal um, in an issue um, throughout medicine. Um, I think the keys are to advocate for yourself as a patient and as a physician to push for programs to have nutrition and education lifestyle programs so you can learn about them. And then also, I think that at the policy level, sort of shifting our care towards value is going to be really important um, to sort of support doctors who want to be more impactful in their interventions. Um, because there's just, there's uh, a doctor who sees eight patients a day is just not going to be well, you know, administrators are not going to appreciate that. So really just focusing on uh, those sort of levels, advocate for yourself, as a physician advocate for more education in these areas on a policy level to work on sort of value-based care. I think these are all facets that um, need to be focused on. Now, you, you talked a little bit ago about patients advocating for themselves, and one of the best things that they can do is to seek out that information themselves. And the, so like in your in your book, Body on Fire, you have a lot of great information in there. You know, you coach coach somebody up uh, by reading, but the companion cookbook is out now, correct? Yeah, yeah, yes. Thank you. Uh, that's nice of you to bring that up. Yes. The cookbook came out this week, uh, which is crazy. It showed up in my mailbox. I, I didn't actually realize it was coming, and it showed up in the mailbox, so that was kind of fun. And so you know, the book is written um, because, you know, I myself have been sick and what that started my process of learning over the last, whatever, 10 or 15 years now about how to heal the body with um, nutrition and lifestyle. And I do think it's more than just nutrition. I think there's so many lifestyle components, stress reduction, and we talk a lot about that in the Body on Fire book. And so I wrote, we wrote that book, uh, Jyoti and I wrote that book because I always wanted to make sure that the science was clear, like there's science behind what we're saying. We're not crazy. We're not quacks. This is like legit nutrition and lifestyle work. 
And these are the mechanisms that make you better. And so we go through how you get sick, how sickness happens, the components, and then we go through the tools that make you better. Um, but then we got some feedback on that book that said, but okay, I've read it. I get it. I have to fix this, 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 but how do I start it? Like, how do I actually start? Which was interesting. So um, the Body on Fire cookbook has a whole section on how to start. So like day one, we want you to do this, 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 and this change. Uh, and when we want you to add in different foods. And then of course there's recipes, which was the other second criticism of the book, which was that it didn't have any recipes. Our intention was not to have recipes in the book one, because we really wanted it to explain all the why we want to make change. And then the, the cookbook really is, well, how to make help to make the changes in more specific details for those people who wanted sort of the how to one day one, do this day two do that. And I'm going to get asked this. So I got to ask you, this is the final question. What's the best recipe in the book? Um, oh, goodness. Um, I like a lot of them. Um, I, you know, I'm Indian. So I like a lot of the Indian recipes like the sag is a, is a hit for me. Sag means spinach in Hindi, um, which is the language of India, uh, the primary majority of, uh, language of India. I also really like the curries. So there's a green curry because I'm obsessed with curries, um, which is not an Indian based, but more of an Asian based or Thai based. Um, I really like chia seed pudding, um, which is another one of the one hits for me. We put in some basic recipes too, like hummus and how to make hummus. And, um, because I think, you know, depending on what level of cooking, um, expertise you have, we wanted some, we didn't want it to be such a, uh, high end book where you're using ingredients that nobody knows what they are and require you to buy a whole bunch of cooking instruments. Um, but a lot of sort of the basics that we wanted, uh, people to have. So there's, um, like four types of hummus um, that we recommend sort of varieties um, because I have three kids and they never want to eat exactly what I prepare them. So I have to be creative. So uh, those would probably be some of the best. Uh, the My favorites would be like the sag, all of the Indian recipes, because those were fun to write. And people always ask me for recipes for Indian food. Um, of course, the curries. Um, and of course, because I'm, uh, I do have a chia seed pu pudding problem. <laughs> <laughs> Chia seed pudding problem. There are worse problems to have, let me tell you. So, oh my goodness. Uh, we will put a link for you to purchase your copy of the book in the uh, show notes here. So go ahead and click on that and uh, have it sent your way and, and make some of that delicious pudding. Uh, Dr. Monica Agarwal, thank you so very much for being here. Thank you also for releasing the study, doing it. Um, I mean, just some really critical, important findings that I hope will, will spur your fellow cardiologists on to kind of look at things in a different light and, and maybe look at their patients on a more individual level and give them the option. You know, do you want to go see a diet? dietitian or nutritionist, you may benefit from it. So not a bad thing at all. So thank you very much, Dr. Agarwal. Great to talk to you as always. As always. Thank you so much. Good talking to you. Just some extraordinary insight from Dr. Agarwal here on the show today. And don't forget to pick up the companion cookbook for her book, Your Body on Fire talking about inflammation and giving you some delicious recipes to bring that inflammation under control. Now, we were talking about cardiologists and why they may not refer patients to a dietitian. Get that nutritional intervention. And again, as we were talking about, I think back to when I was overweight and how many times 
it took for me to be ready to want to have that nutritional intervention. But I can also say that I was never given that option either. I mean, prescribed blood pressure medication when I was 14 years old, instead of saying you should eat this instead of that would need something more specific than that ambiguous, well, eat healthier instead of eating high-fat foods. Need to know what healthier actually is. And that's why it's so important that we educate doctors on nutrition. Because a lot of times, as we've learned today, they may not even know what healthier is. But you do. You are learning with us. And so let's help others learn what healthy truly is and what it truly can be. And one of the best ways you can do that is by subscribing to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee and leave a five-star rating. When you do, you can do that on Apple podcast or Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows, because the more subscriptions we have, the more downloads we get, the easier it becomes for people who need this information the most to find it. So let's help them out doctors and patients and everybody who wants to take charge of their health. And if you want to do a really deep dive into nutrition, the power of preventative medicine, well, coming up this summer, August 18th through the 20th, you should join us for the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. The Physicians Committee will be hosting that in Washington, D.C. Now, over the course of those three days, there will be 30 speakers revealing the latest nutrition research really diving into this deeper than perhaps you've ever been before and doing it in person as we all learn together, all raise our health IQs together over the course of those three days. And oh, by the way, the food at these conferences have been fantastic through the years, and I cannot imagine that this year will be anything different. So go ahead, visit pcrm.org slash ICNM to make your reservation. And speaking this year, here's a list of the speakers. We have Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Sarai Stancic, Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Alan Desmond, Dustin Harder, the vegan roadie, plus our friends Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero from Mastering Diabetes, and so many more. 30 speakers in all. Would love for you to join us in person. So pcrm.org slash ICNM for complete details and to register. And here's a really cool thing. Special rates are available for both students, food for life instructors, and certain health professionals. Plus, if you need them, continuing education credits are available. Again, pcrm.org slash ICNM, or just click the link right now in the episode notes. Coming up on the next show, a live Q&A with our good buddy, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Foods that heal the gut. Join us then. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Monica Agarwal for being here and talking about such an important topic. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.